I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. To borrow the wording of Psalm 122, verse number 1. In the days of the long ago, even David felt an excitement. He felt a degree of enthusiasm connected with the assembly of the saints. And today, aren't we blessed this Sunday morning to also feel the same? It's good to be back with our Pippin family today. We certainly continue to be thankful for the kind thoughts and prayers you offered in regard to that gospel meeting in which I was a part last week. But certainly good to be back here today. Appreciate Brother Dennis and the outstanding lessons and delivered in such a wonderful way. We're certainly blessed to, to have a man like that in our, um, in our midst, and we're so thankful that he's so capable and able to do that which we ask of him to do. Today I have a question that you can see forms the title of the lesson this morning. Will a man rob God? Now that particular question, it may well be that in your mind and mine, we would think, well, obviously the answer has to be no. Can anybody in strength and in directness and in aggressiveness take something from God that he does not wish to be taken? When a thief robs you or me today, we understand they come at us with force and perhaps even a weapon, and they take what belongs to us, or we perceive it so, and they by force take it. Believe it or not, the Bible asks that question. It isn't just me. You may have noted in the, in the reading from Malachi chapter 3 this morning, that question is actually found. This introductory slide will begin us a consideration of that which touches that particular question, and we'll devote the fullness of our time this morning to think somewhat about it, and may I say, the implications that shall come your way and mine. On this slide, you'll notice that the blessedness that comes with assembly of the saints, today at least for this part of our service, will ask of us a very serious question. Will a man rob God? And if it's possible, are you and I guilty of it? To even contemplate that surely must cause in us a great amount of thinking and quite frankly concern, because if I'm guilty of robbing God, there's bound to be a payment. There's bound to be a time of reckoning for that. Today, why don't we study that question in the confines of the book of Malachi. And as we do that, we will first try to place ourselves in the day and time of that book so that we're aware of its context. And then we'll make application to us today. As we do that, this opening slide will be my attempt to bring us back to the point of the context of that book of Malachi. I would suspect that the book of Malachi is not the best known book in the Bible. Of the 66 books forming the Holy Word of God, probably this is not the first one that comes to our mind as we think about the messages it contains and the placement of it for our benefit today. But may I suggest to you that it is the last book of the Old Testament. Not only that, the Holy Spirit not only delivered it, but has seen fit to preserve it. And those things written aforetime were written for our learning. And that means whatever the messages are in the book of Malachi, whatever the considerations of that book were and are, they are still meaningful and they hold elements of utility for you and me. That's one of the most beautiful things, isn't it, about the Word of God? That things written as long ago as this book was can still be very helpful and meaningful for us. And so let's try to use it, among other things, to answer the question, will a man rob God? 
as far as attempting to do justice to its context. On this slide, I've tried to be brief enough so that we can at least begin that placement, but then move into the lesson. We're all well aware that God's people were in Egyptian captivity at one time. And in that place, it came to be that they were under hard labor and bondage, and it was said to be very rigorous, as the book of Exodus will tell us. But as we well recall, the time came that God, through His marvelous majesty, delivered those people from that place and began to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. And so it was on that slide, the time came, the people entered that beautiful land of Canaan. The book of Joshua details that entrance. And as they, being led by Joshua, crossed that Jordan River and entered into the land of Canaan, the time would come that they would settle in that place and they would enjoy the fruitfulness and the provision and the fertility of that land. Oh, how abundant it was. It provided for all of their physical needs. It provided all the things that they, you see, needed for comfort and necessity in this life. But as you can tell on that slide, might we never forget that their habitation in Canaan was conditional. God had told them, you will be allowed and blessed to live here so long as you obey me, so long as you're faithful to my commandments, so long as you honor and respect my word. I've asked you to notice that a number of times that conditional aspect was noted. In that regard, how quickly you and I notice, the time would come that they would not obey the Lord, the time would come that they would fall from their faithfulness and because of their failure to the condition that God gave, they lost their residence in that land. In the words of the Old Testament, God allowed the kingdom of Babylon as well as Assyria to come and conquer them and take them away into captivity. Second Chronicles 36 will tell us in a very brief way why God allowed that to happen. It was because they sinned. They were not faithful to their promise to God. No wonder in that light you and I do also remember that God did nonetheless promise a remnant. That although you are not in this place now, I will bless you with a time when a remnant shall return. And one more time dwell in that place. The book of Ezekiel says much about that remnant. The book of Jeremiah does as well. May I say that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah detail the remnant did return, just like God had promised that they would. But that brings us very close to our lesson of Malachi this morning. Because after the people came back from captivity, about 100 years after their return, the book of Malachi was written to them. And God commissioned Malachi, and He sent Malachi to bring to them some messages. Remember, a hundred years after their time in captivity, God needed to remind them of certain things. He needed to impress upon them certain things. And so the book of Malachi, in four chapters, in a very brief way, will pointedly tell them some things they needed to change. At the bottom of that slide, I point out that there's another unique element of the book of Malachi. It was written in a question and answer format. Many times in the book of Malachi, you find that God addresses a question, 
And then he proceeds to offer the answer as well as the elaboration of it in the verses that follow it. That's a bit unusual. None of the other minor prophets are like that. But how interesting it is to notice how useful that particular matter is and how effective it can be. So now we come to chapter 3, verse 8. Though that was read just a moment ago, let's hear again as we listen to the question. God speaking says, Will a man rob God? But ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings? Now in that particular issue, that's one of the questions that again God asked the people in this day and time. Again, a question, and He proceeds to answer. Will a man rob God? And then God quickly says, You have robbed me. So the first thing we learn, it is possible to rob God. It is something that can be done, and it's something you and I can do today. At this point, as we develop that even further, why don't we then, over the next time of our lesson this morning, detail some ways drawn from the book of Malachi in which they were robbing Him, and note how easy it is to see the implications in our service to God today, perhaps. Namely, we might well be guilty of doing the same. First of all, point number one. As you and I revisit chapter one of Malachi, we notice they were robbing God in one of the things that they were failing to do. May I read to you verses six and following of chapter one of Malachi. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thee? Did you notice the structure of that particular verse? Wasn't it true? God says, Look, we all know that a son honors his dad, and a slave or a servant honors his master. God then says, Where's my honor? I'm your master. I'm your spiritual father. Where's my honor? You'll notice in verse number 6, God says, especially to the priests, you haven't honored me. And then they had the gall to say, well, where have we failed to honor thee? And then he spends about the next eight verses explaining to them the ways in which they had failed to honor him. At this point, why don't we pause to make these observations? Because the principle of that is just as needful and just as vital today, isn't it? God is our Father, we're His children. The Lord is, of course, our Lord and we are His servants. Should we honor Him? Absolutely. Aren't we taught in the New Testament that our honor is to be directed absolutely to the Lord? And so consider with me verses such as these. In Psalm 89, verse number 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 reminds us the whole conclusion is summed up like this. Fear God. Fear God and keep His commandments. There's no question then that our lot, our chore, and our delightful thrust should be to honor the God of heaven. That, of course, is what Israel should have done, but they had failed. Could it be that you and I might find ourselves guilty of the same? 
on the remainder of that slide, may I point out that there was a serious problem connected to ancient Israel. A hundred years after the captivity, they were living as if things were just like they were before it. They weren't respecting and honoring God. They weren't devoting themselves to Him as they were supposed to have done. And in that regard, no wonder God sent Malachi to them with the hope to reinvigorate them with the truth that was their earlier promise. On that slide, could I note that that serious problem could well be characteristic of us. Might you or I proceed through our life, and though we wear the name Christian, and though we may have gathered with the saints on a day or two a week, what about the other days of the week? Is my life tomorrow characteristic of what God would have it be? Is your life Thursday characteristic of that which God would have it be? If not, then I'm guilty of the same thing point number one is, and I'm guilty of what they were. I'm not honoring God as I ought. Some of the verses you'll note there at the bottom perhaps ask us to put a number to this. Isn't it so that every week has 168 hours. And if God blesses you and I with life, I will live 168 hours in each week. But clearly of that number, a fair number, are easily accounted for already. Take out time for work, 40, maybe even more hours than that a week. Take out time for sleep and rest. There easily goes a whole host of additional hours. Take out other times for necessary issues such as eating, dressing, bathing, and showering, the other necessities of life, I'd quickly say you aren't left with, with a handful even then. Factor in some time for recreation. Factor in necessary time with your family, which is certainly exceedingly important. It'd be pretty easy to get down to a handful of hours at most left. How do I direct them? What choices do I make concerning them? I would point out so easily that God has made His demands and surely as we honor Him, we too must be mindful and make sure we don't leave Him out of that equation completely. Am I at attendance? He only asks me for four hours a week in attendance. Four out of 168. That really isn't much. Especially when you think about some of the Old Testament Israelites and how often they met and some of the issues of the early church and how often they met. Is really four out of 168 that large? Causes me to at least ponder myself. Could I be devoting to God something in time and choosing not to do it? Very possible. God told the ancient Israelites through Malachi about something like that, didn't He? Where's my honor? Where's my fear? You'll note near the bottom of that slide, that issue itself challenges us to think a little bit about the overall choices that we make each day. May I say that, however, the book of Malachi goes even further than that. Because look at number two. When they did come together, what did it then say? Now, I stopped reading a moment ago at verse 6 of chapter 1, but let me read a few verses... <clears throat> Excuse me, that follow it. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? 
And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name saith, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now although more verses that follow it will continue to address that point, look at what has already been stated. God said, even when you do come together, you're not honoring me. The worship in which you're engaging is nothing but a habit. Oh, you offer me sacrifices, but you find the sick and the lame in your flock, and that's what you offer me. Tell you what, offer it to the governor and see if he'll take it. God is far more worthy than that. He deserves our best. The people of Israel, a hundred years after the captivity, were acting almost as bad as they had before God took them into captivity. And here he says they were offering polluted bread upon the altar. Now, he doesn't say how it was polluted. The idea is in the book of Leviticus, they were told how to prepare it. And apparently they were not preparing it that way. Were they giving him moldy bread? Maybe. Were they giving him other things that were at least unsatisfactory? Absolutely. You'll notice that in terms of the offerings, it was so critical, wasn't it, that in Deuteronomy 17.1, when they selected the particular animal to be offered, it was to be without blemish. It couldn't be sick. It couldn't be blind or lame. It couldn't have a skin condition of some sort. They had to pick the best because that's what God deserves. God here notes they were offering to Him the leftovers. Search through the flock and find the one that was no good to you, or at least the one that was the least good, and, well, I can do without that when I'll let God have it. That's the completely wrong attitude, isn't it? Could we be guilty of that today? Could it be that the various services, for example, I appreciate them as more or less a habit, well, 9.30 on Sunday morning has come. It's time to go to services. I'll sure be glad when it's over at about 11.30. Well, 5.30 Sunday evening is here. I guess I've got to go. I sure wish I didn't have to, but if that's our attitude, do you gain the feeling that God says you really had just as well stay home? Did you notice in verse 10? Shut the doors of the temple. You're not doing any good here. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? Verse number 12 will go on to say this, But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye say, Behold, what a weariness is it! Sounds a lot like phraseology we might hear. I sure wish I didn't have to go, but boy, if I don't, those elders are going to be calling me. The others are going to know I'm not there. Well, may I say, that sure reflects a lot on the spiritual sickness that is me, or you, if we're thinking like that.
The worship services should be the delight of the week. It ought to be a time, and it's not just because of our brothers and sisters that are there. We enjoy them to be sure, but God is watching. And we thrill at how good He's been to us. Is it the least we can do to come before Him and pour out our heart in gratitude and in sheer thanksgiving for the man that died on the cross that my sins can be forgiven and that I can go to heaven? It ought to be the least we can do. And yet the people of that day and time, they lived long before Jesus came to this earth. So they didn't have all the precious privileges we've got. And God challenged them with their unworthiness. What about us? We live in a better time than they did. And so if we're guilty of the same as they were, in many ways it's a worse crime. No wonder then the chapter closes by saying in verse 14, But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificed unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God says, then the man that does this, that has a perfectly fine animal, and chooses to offer a corrupt one, that man's a deceiver. And that verse goes on to say, I'm going to remember this. Wouldn't it be frightful to stand on the day of judgment before God knowing how good that He had been to us and what our opportunity was in response to Him and for us to have behaved the way we did and oh, what a terrible sentence that's going to be ours. So you'll notice on that slide today, our worship shouldn't be just a habit. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding in the words of 1 Corinthians 14, 15. As we come together to worship, we do so in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And we do so because we want to. Worship is, again, not only a matter which glorifies God, it genuinely improves us. To think about the book of Malachi and to see these points so far allows us to close that slide and remember that God said the reasoning for His statement along this line was, I am a great king. It's an insult to God if we thus offer to Him the scraps, the leftovers of our life, the considerations of worship that are unfit in light of what He has said. But what about point number three? In addition to these two, they had failed to appreciate God's goodness. Let's turn particularly to one of the other questions that were asked of them in this book. And as we do that, we too will be led to see another issue that they faced and one too which could be a part for you and me as well. First of all, could I begin this thought like this? When it comes to God's provision, it should be well remembered that He owns everything anyway. That car that you and I have, that house that we have, the piece of land that we own, it's already His. I know that we are given trust with regard to it, and we take care of it, we're stewards of it, we wish to be dutiful concerning it. But in the final analysis, it's not ours. God said in Psalm 50, All those cattle that are on a thousand hills, I own every one of them. Do you own some livestock? God owns them. That bank account that you and I have, no matter how extensive or lack thereof it may be, it already belongs to Him. Listen to the fantastic description of Psalm 24, 1. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and everything that's in it, under it, on it, above it, it's all God's already. Doesn't that impress upon us then the needfulness of understanding then that we are but dutiful servants with respect to those things. And surely one day we'll give an accounting for the way in which we have been stewards of them. On that slide you'll notice the children of Israel were guilty of this. I've asked you to particularly observe in chapter 3, we read verse 8, but would you now notice verses 9 and 10. Remember, God said, you've robbed me, and now He explains it. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. God said, you are a cursed people because you have robbed me, and now He says this, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. May I point out that you and I are our own worst enemies. Absolutely. If we're stingy with regard to God. Did you notice Israel, if they were merely to provide to Him that which was rightfully His anyway, and give the measure of what their gifts were to Him, God says, I will open heaven. And I will give you so much, you will not even have room to, to handle it, to store it, to deal with it. But you see, because they were stingy with God, God was stingy with them. He withheld from them, as this book details, some of the wonderful blessings He wanted to pour out upon them. In your life and mine, if we're having sufficient difficulties of certain character, one of the things we might well need to ask, have I been stingy with God? And in that regard, has He then not poured out upon me those blessings otherwise which He might have done? You may remember certain men like Abraham, a man of great wealth in the ancient day. Long before there was the modern commerce and business of our day, Abraham was a wealthy man. How did he get all that wealth in that far ancient agricultural day? Could it be because of Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. In other words, God poured out from heaven blessings more numerous than Abraham could handle. You may recall in Genesis 13, his herdman and Lot's herdman had a bit of a controversy because the land wasn't sufficient to bear it all. Isn't that, in essence, a relation to Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10? Today, may I say that even if you and I have what amounts physically to less than others, as those devoted to God, oh, how much we have. One last thing on that slide is the reminder from Malachi 3, verse 10, of the abundance of the windows of heaven. Oh, how we want God on our side, looking with favor upon the kind of person we are, the influence we make, the kind of life we choose to lead. God's people were failing at this time. Oh, how we appreciate the fact that it was going to be about 435 years before Jesus would be born. 
these people had to get through a little over four centuries before the greatest to ever walk the planet was going to be here. They did make it. But there were times in that period of 400 years when things looked bleak, things looked dire, and things looked as if they might not make it. But God preserved them enough to where the Son of God came through their lineage. Lesson number four. What else might we notice about the book of Malachi in this connection? They failed to appreciate the grace of God. A few other developments from the book will in fact point us in that direction, and then the lesson will be yours today. But as you give thought to chapter 3, notice in the opening verses of that chapter we have a remarkable presentation. Allow me to read the first couple of verses. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. The God of heaven did point out, you are seeking for the one to come. So they had their eye toward the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and the coming of the one that was to be such a dramatic person in their, in their place. But yet you notice in verse 1, he said, I'm going to prepare the one who will prepare the way. You and I know that's a reference to John the Baptist. Now you and I remember John was just a little bit older, about six months older than Jesus, and he did come preparing the way, preparing the hearts of men and women to receive the message of Jesus to Christ. We know that so because the New Testament quotes this verse and applies it to John. And then you'll notice, suddenly the Lord will come to His temple. Jesus did come and He came suddenly. And He appeared there in a public ministry challenging the hearts of people and directing them to the truth of God. Sometimes that message is very challenging. Read the Sermon on the Mount with me. As you give thought to that early sermon in the Lord's presentation and how direct it was, no wonder in that connection. Look back to the text before us. Verse 3, "...He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver." And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The importance of righteousness. Now I would ask you to notice, all of this, an Old Testament presentation, was a wonderful reflection of the grace of God. His goodness, His provision. God had made plans from the fullness of eternity past to send Jesus to Christ, and he, re, he notified the people in Malachi, He is coming. He wasn't here yet, but He is coming. And when He comes, what a provision and presentation from God He's going to make. So important it shall be that even one will prepare the way for Him. But you'll notice that He is going to come as a refiner. He ain't going to take just anything offered to Him. He's going to come purifying the hearts and minds of people, directing it to how it ought to be. 
Therefore, notice, the people of that day needed to realize all of this stuff you've been doing, where you have failed to worship as you should, you fail to offer as you should, you fail to be the people you should be, God's taking note, and you need to be a refined people. May I suggest we today, in many ways, fit exactly that same bill. We too need to be a people of refinement and a people in which the very life and character of God is seen in us. No wonder in verses 4, 5, and 6, God says, I change not. What I expected of the patriarchs in days past, I expect of you. That being said, God expects of us the same He expected of those first century saints. He expects of us that faithfulness and fidelity and truth and dedication that He expected of them. So at the bottom of that slide, consider God's grace with me. God's grace is presented in the gospel. We read about that in Acts 20, 24. And we find it specifically housed in Jesus the Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. Are you in Christ? Am I? then if so, may our life reflect where we claim to be. Amazingly, beautifully, and challengingly, we also see in that this idea. Romans 6, 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things above. And may it be such that, let us not say that we may dwell in sin. Because if we're in Christ, that has been put aside. It's been put away. And we live a life of fullness and hope and a life of great treasure indeed. No wonder at the bottom of that slide, we close it and close these thoughts by saying, Malachi's message was just as needful and pertinent then as certainly it is for us. Question, will a man rob God? They were guilty of it. You and I can be guilty of it too. I trust and hope that we've been motivated and encouraged as we've allowed God to speak to us just as He spoke to them. Because there was work to be done. There was change to be made. There was direction in life to be pursued. And if that was done, God said, I will richly pour out blessings so innumerous that you'll not be able to even store it. Now today, you and I may never be billionaires. We know there are people like that on earth. But isn't it still true that Mark 8, verses 36 and 37 will say, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you own the whole world and lose your own soul, you still come up on the short end of that discussion. So today, whether we are rich in that way or not, God's greatest consideration was that they were to be rich for Him. May you and I as Christians ever so conduct ourselves that we'll not be guilty of robbing God, but we will offer to Him that which He rightfully deserves, that which He justly deserves. And our life will be a great blessing to not only ourselves, but all of those whom we know, if that be the case. Today, it could be that someone in this assembly, maybe upon reflection of the fact you've come to realize you've robbed God, Maybe you didn't realize that's what you were doing at the time, but in light of Malachi 3, you've come to realize that really was what you were guilty of doing. Don't you love the fact that God isn't just going to cast you on the dump heaps of doom, but He offers to you the opportunity to repent.
and the opportunity to make a change and come back to Him. And with open arms, just like the prodigal son's dad, He will welcome you back home. And you'll again be able to enjoy the dining in the Father's house. Today, if we could assist you by assisting you to come back to your first love, it'd be our joy and privilege. You need to acknowledge those sins, confess them, and repent of them. And He will welcome you so greatly back home. But it may be that someone in this assembly is in need of obeying the gospel initially. Maybe you've realized that the wealth of talent that you have, it's really God's. And all throughout life, whatever you're privileged to accomplish and do, it's all because of Him. And maybe in earnestness, you've come to realize today that you need to honor Him this way. Because if you don't, you're robbing Him. He is to be credited. If you'd like to become a Christian today, we would celebrate with you, and the angels in heaven will too. Luke 15, 7. You need to believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God that He is who He said He was, that He died on the cross for you, and that He's currently reigning in heaven at God's right hand. Upon that belief, repent. That is to say, change your mind toward the things you have done in life, those things that were sinful, be they things that you said, the way in which you conducted yourself. Turn aside from that. Then make a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Following that, we would be delighted to immerse you in water, baptism for the remission of your sins. When you come out of that water, every evil thing you've ever done is no more. It is no more. You'll never have to answer for the guilt of any one of them because the blood of Christ has washed it away. Talk about starting anew. Talk about starting fresh. That's it. And today, if we could help somebody in that regard, we would love to do it. We use this theme of encouragement to encourage you to come while together we stand and sing.